0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, October 15th, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. When you're fighting corporate welfare and big government handouts to special interests, it's beneficial to know who your friends are, and a broad coalition of groups not normally aligned regularly find themselves on the same side of the fight to end or stop special interest giveaways. John Mozina runs the Center for Economic Accountability. He describes just how these kinds of coalitions get started, why they matter. Corporate welfare is a high priority, uh, a fat target for uh, people who are involved in the the liberty movement. Uh, how do these things get done to begin with?
1: Well, one of the really interesting things to come out of the past maybe year and a half or so is that for a long time, uh, a lot of reformers, a lot of us in the liberty movement thought you know oh, you really can't, you know, you're not going to win those corporate welfare reform battles. Oh, they're too big, oh, they're too powerful. And over the past about year and a half or so, um there have been a couple really high profile successes where uh, bipartisan coalitions. In states actually, you know, undertook and succeeded at meaningful reforms at killing programs that had very powerful lobbies behind them. In Texas, the Chapter 313 program, which heavily benefited the uh, state's oil and gas industry, was basically a big closing fund, $7 billion in costs to the state, uh, was killed by a coalition that included uh, Texas Public Policy Foundation along with groups on the left. In Michigan, the Good Jobs for Michigan subsidy program, uh, which had been initially introduced in part to like try to win Amazon HQ2, was allowed to sunset despite support from manufacturers, including the auto industry. And so if, you know, people who think that, oh, well, the lobbies in our states are too powerful to take these programs on, if you can reform over the protests of the oil and gas industry in Texas and over the protests of the auto industry in Michigan— you probably have a shot in your state, too.
0: You and I were speaking uh, before we started recording about the groups who would rarely be aligned except for these massive cash giveaways or tax, special tax treatment to large, big, shiny interest groups, uh, often a sports team or a large employer. You know, how do those groups coalesce, and uh, for people who are listening, particularly state-level lawmakers and uh, local interests that understand the economics of the costs associated with these kinds of giveaways, uh, how can they get those relationships going?
1: I think it starts with, with looking at uh, who's got a problem with this from the other side, and it's often a function of you know, simple pocketbook issues. You know, one of the one of the sort of constituencies on the left for reform on this is uh, uh, public employee unions, teachers, police officers, others. I was at a meeting uh, at lunch with a state-based free market think tank and the chief lobbyist of that state's uh, primary me local, which is not a meeting that happens all that often in good faith, but it did on this. I actually. Um, at one point, I was uh, testifying to Detroit City Council against giving the Detroit Pistons $34.5 million in subsidies, and uh, they didn't listen to me. But after I left the podium, I was buttonholed by a representative of the National Action Network, which at Al Sharpton's group, and he said, you know, we don't agree with you on much, but we agree on this. So finding folks who some of, sometimes it's a matter of principle, and there are fo- principled people on the left who are just opposed to, to that sort of, you know, enrichment of corporations. There's folks for whom it's a pocketbook issue on the right. There's a, the people who are just sort of against cronyism. And then there's folks who are starting to really understand who are maybe sort of more sort of sort of generic fiscal conservatives, but are tr- really starting to understand just how much these programs are really costing. And that's really what I think is driving a lot of this is that the programs have gotten so big, the deals have gotten so big, and the research has started really unveiling just how much of a hammer these deals are putting on on state and local
0: budgets, yeah, for the ideologically agnostic uh, the data on these on these kinds of deals, these giveaways, it's just not good no, and I mean, and you start putting it in terms of what else could you have bought
1: with that money? I mean you don't even have to be in favor of limited government. Uh, some of the examples I use are that um, in New York City. Uh, it reported as much money in tax abatements uh, in 2019, about $3.8 billion, uh, as much money as it spent in general fund revenues to run the New York Fire Department and New York Department of Corrections combined. Um, or that's also more than the city raised in revenues from its primary general corporation tax on S-corporations in the city. Um, in Iowa a few years ago, I did some math with some folks there and found that the state's tax credit uh burden of about $422 million was almost exactly equal to the amount of spending by all state and local government agencies combined on mental health and disability services. You can even get granular in Detroit, like one land acquisition deal to uh you know, get together land for a uh, auto plant expansion was more money than the city spent that year to run the Detroit Health Department. And when you tell people those things, when you put it in those, those sorts of contexts, they start saying, "Like, wait a second, that seems like a problem," and that's where a lot of these reform decisions or these reform coalitions are starting to grow up. Um, and it's not even a question; you don't even have to jump necessarily to reform. There's some some research that hasn't uh, been published yet that I've uh, sort of uh, gotten an early glimpse at from uh, Professor uh, Nate Jensen at the University of Texas that talks about he surveyed uh, local officials on how they felt about this stuff. And one of the things that came really clear is that a you know, super majority, 70% plus of local elected officials are like in favor of imp- improved transparency around these programs and these deals. So if you don't think even that you can go all the way toward reform, there's a very strong coalition out there at the very least for improved transparency. And that, you know, the more you shine a light on these programs, the more you start realizing the problems, the better chance
0: you have of meaningful reform down the road. There's a line that I have seen uh, used in context of gentrification, which is by the time the coffee shops and the, you know, doggy daycare facilities come in, the deals have already been made uh, years in advance to uh, bring gentrification to a neighborhood. And whatever you think of that, it does seem like there is a a parallel, which is uh, by the time uh, these deals, the ink is just drying on a lot of these deals. All of the preparation for that deal, that's already been done. And the public often learns about these things after they've occurred, like after all that work has been done relatively quietly, and then it just gets springed uh, on the on the public.
1: Absolutely. I mean, if there's a defining characteristic of, of state and local economic development authorities, it is their, their uh, collective hostility to transparency and their design often from the ground up uh, to really... Um, be opaque to the normal tools of uh, FOIA and the Open Meetings Act and other things. I was actually at, uh, some years ago, at a um, Cato Institute uh, symposium on the freedom of information. And they, the speakers were folks who dealt with uh, the Pentagon and, you know, they were FOIAing the NSA and, and the DOD and those things. And I went up after them and said, you know, I work in economic development. They're like, oh man, like, you know, we think we've got it bad, but, you know, trying to deal with the Defense Department, but you've got it just as bad with the economic Development agencies. So um, that's one of the things, reasons I say that uh, transparency is a really good starting point because the more you can shine a light on these deals before they get made, the more you can do things like require publishing of information about a deal uh, while there's still time for not just the community activists, but also, you know, the other companies that are involved. Because remember, if you're subsidizing one company, there's probably a bunch of other competitors, whether it's in the same industry or even people who are trying to compete to hire the same kinds of employees that might have a problem with that. And, and you know, uh, Charles Koch and Brian Hooks of, of Stand Together in, in one of the recent books talked about the fact that the solution for this has to really come from like the 80% plus Of businesses that aren't getting these subsidies. And that's where this comes in, is that the more transparency we have, the more we have the ability to to engage and alert the business community that's on the short end of the stick, uh, the more they'll be able to become advocates for reform. And that's really where a lot of this will end up coming from down the road, I think, is when the, you know, businesses are already starting to realize that it's not doing them any good when when uh, uh Amazon or Tesla or Foxconn or Google or any of these guys get their their giant multi-million, if not multi-billion dollar subsidies. Um, if given the opportunity to, to really get engaged, uh, I think you'd actually see many more chances for reform around the country.
0: John Mozina runs the Center for Economic Accountability. We spoke in August. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast pretty much anywhere and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.